Luke 19.45 says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Verse 46, it is written, he said to them, My, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This takes place on a Tuesday, the day after Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring himself to be the Messiah. Mark 11.11 11 tells us that after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that he went into the temple courts, but because it was late, he just went and looked around and went back over the hill to Bethany, uh, where he rested, well, obviously, in uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. And without a doubt, on that Monday night when he walked in, Jesus entered into the temple courts. He saw the corruption that was going on, and the next day, he sought to straighten that out. And so verse 45 tells us that he enter, entered the temple courts. In, in uh, Greek, there's two words for temple there. There's one that's used just for the general temple complex. It'd be like saying, hey, we're going to church. Um, you know, and, and that would encompass the whole grounds. But then there's another word that's more accurate and tighter, which talks about the building proper. This word is saying that Jesus went into the temple courts. It was uh, basically a, a thousand, a thousand uh, meters by, you know, uh, 670 meters or cubits or whatever they, they transfer. It's just a big complex. And as you enter the outer courts of the temple... The outer courts, the temple would be there in the center in the middle. Uh, as you entered in through this area, uh, through that east gate, you would enter what is called the court of the Gentiles, and that would basically be surrounding most of the temple area, the court of the Gentiles. It was a huge area. And obviously, it was called the court of the Gentiles because uh, Gentiles were not allowed to go any further than that area. Uh, Gentiles, meaning those who probably converted over to Judaism, were allowed to be in that outer court area, but they didn't have the uh, status and privilege of a true-born Israelite. And so as you continued on further into the temple complex, there would be the court of the women, where the women would gather. Men and women were separated during worship. That's the way it was. And as you entered in a little bit further, you got to the court of, of the Israelites, which is where the men would gather. And as the men were looking into these, past these, this giant bronze gate, um, made of Corinthian bronze, which probably doesn't make any things, but it was really heavy and you could lift it. It took 20 guys to open it up. It was very robust. As you looked in past that, you could see the court of the priests ministering where the temple was, doing the sacrifices and all these types of things before the Lord. And as they looked into that area, you could possibly see up the steps into the temple, which was the building proper, which, which inside that first area was the holy place. It's where they had the showbread and, and the lamp. And then you would meet a, a curtain, which would be the veil. And behind that curtain would be a small place called the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would be, which is where the very presence of God would manifest itself when the high priest entered once a year um, after sacrificing uh, the Passover, or, or actually it wouldn't be the Passover, uh, on the Day of Atonement, they'd sacrifice an animal, and they'd be, the high priest would go in there and atone for the sins of the people once a year. And it's very interesting that uh, 
that that was foreshadowing what would be taking place in two days where the Lamb of God actually would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And that veil would be torn. And there would no longer be a separation between God and His people that they could run into the Holy of Holies and be with their Father because the sin had been paid for. The people had been not just covered over, but totally cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful picture there. And so the focus of the temple was to be where God would meet His people, that the people of God could worship God, who is absolutely holy. He's set apart from this world. He's uncommon. And they could commune with Him, and He would hear them because their sins were being covered through the sacrifices that would be offered by the priests on their behalf. When Jesus died, the priestly system was abolished because there is no longer anyone in between us and God except for Jesus Christ, who is our great and high priest. I highly encourage you to read through Hebrews. And so the temple was that primary house of worship and communion. And and when we're worshiping God and we're communing with God, we're we're praying to God, we're, we're beseeching Him. And so it was a house of prayer. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, this is Herod's temple. The temple had been, Solomon's temple had been destroyed, but a while back, Solomon's temple was dedicated on that same place. King Solomon prayed and said the following about the purpose of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, 27 through 30, when Solomon prayed, he says, but uh, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens and even the highest heaven cannot contain you. To think that a building could absolutely contain God was ridiculous, and Solomon realized this. It was strictly for our benefit, basically. God wanted us to have a focus, wanted His people to have a focus and a place where that might happen. But He said, how much this, less this temple I have built you, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry in the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. <coughs> Excuse me, may your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant, your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And there's a lot more there in 1 Kings 8, but the general idea was that it was a place where people were communicating with God. They were communing with God. And because God is holy and He can't be in the presence of sinful people, there must be a sacrifice for sin. And so the animal sacrifices and all the things were going were a picture where people would look upon that in faith as that their sins were transferred to those things, and therefore they could now be free to commune with God. And what God was accepting those sacrifices when they were done with a pure and a right heart, obviously. And so people could enter into that place of, of worship and, com- and communication with God. People think that, that they can just approach God. No one can approach God. We are sinful. We are separated from God from our sin. 
And the only reason why we can approach God is somehow in faith, believing upon His Son, and then our prayers are received and heard, and we are no longer slaves, but we are actually sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And I, I want to get into that, but I want to stay on point here. And so that, that temple was a place where pleas for mercy would go up and where supplication and, and all these types of intercession would be lifted up and forgiveness would be given and mercy would be poured out as God answered their cries. It was a place where God met men. And the priests were to be the ones to facilitate those actions, leading the people in a proper and reverential and, and God-ordained worship. That was their role. Offering sacrifices on their behalf. But guess what? They really weren't doing that. Although they were doing the sacrifices, that was not the heart in which they did it. Instead, what had happened is that the temple had been turned into a way for those in religious leadership to make money off of God's people. Greed had entered the heart of Israel's leadership. They did this by turning worship into a business. Worship into a business. That's what had happened. The temple grounds obviously was the center of worship, and there was a place where Jews and converts to Judaism and with all sorts of economic backgrounds could come and they could worship God, but they had to provide sacrifices and, and offerings so that that could, could, be, could happen. According to the law in Exodus 12.5 and other places, the, the animals were, that were sacrificed were to, had to be a firstborn male and without blemish, among other things. There's a lot of details it goes into. And the priests would be the ones who would examine those animals and see if they, were, they passed inspection. In other words, you couldn't bring your three-legged sheep to get rid of him and say, hey, God, have this one, right? You gave him your best, right? Your firstborn, your best. That was the picture there. And so the priests were the ones who had to approve those sacrifices and make sure they were acceptable. And so what happened was that the priests would often tell the people that the animal wasn't up to snuff. And because it wasn't up to snuff, now you could actually go buy one of our pre-approved animals, right? They've cornered the market. You can't go anywhere else. You got to get a priest pre-approved, you know, lamb, or bull. And so there were these different things like pigeons. Remember Mary and Joseph, they offered a pigeon? That's because they didn't have anything. Others could offer lambs or goats, and then, and then others were able to offer bulls, right? According to whatever it was you would give. And so the high priest at the time, Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Anas, which is who was also the former high priest who maintained a lot of political power, they sold Temple Grounds business franchises basically to merchants. These were the guys, the pastors in charge. They said, all these people got to come and they got to worship. Well, what we're going to do is if you want to come and make money, we're going to set up CD tables and we're going to set up all this type of stuff so people can worship God. And the outside stuff, it doesn't work. This is only can happen in here. It has to be pre-approved, all that type of stuff. And so you come in, you buy our stuff, and then God will accept your worship. 
So they sold those business franchises to merchants who would set up and, and shop inside the temple grounds and sell those pre-approved sacrifices at a marked up price. And guess who scooped off the top profit? Who got a, who got a slice of it? The religious leaders who were in charge. On top of that, you couldn't buy sacrifices with foreign currency. As I mentioned last week, people would flood into the town. There was around eighty to 100,000 people who normally lived in Jerusalem. And I said last week, 12 to 400,000 is actually uh, 4 million. It was 2 million. Excuse me. I, I made a mistake there. So correction, 2 million. Still a lot of people, right, in the town. But it would get, people would come from all over and they'd have different currency. Well, they made it to where you couldn't buy those animals with your foreign currency. You had to exchange it for the local currency or some say the temple shekel. And of course, have you, how many of you have had tried to exchange your money at an airport trying to go, do they charge you a little bit? Well, it's similar to that. That's what's going on. So they would exchange their money and obviously get ripped off 12.5% increase or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. That's what was going on. And so all these people from all these towns had to exchange their currency to that temple coin and had that heavy conversion rate. And so the temple, which was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer, was turned into a way for those spiritual leaders of Israel to make money. And Jesus called the whole operation a den of robbers. You know, robbers, they took refuge in caves right? Where did they find refuge? In the temple. It became so corrupt. People, it became so desensitized to the holiness, to the presence of God. The things were happening that ought not to happen. And there was just a total lack of sensitivity in the leadership. There was a lack of sensitivity perhaps in many of the people. And there just was this cultural collapse that had happened in their worship as supposed worshipers of God. And for the second time in Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple, it says. The first time was three years early at the beginning of his ministry, which John records, and now the last time is at the end of his earthly life. And it says that Jesus drove them out. This means that Jesus physically drove them out. This is not your flannel graph, Jesus. <clears throat> this is Jesus who is God's son, fully a man, infuriated at the false worship and the extortion that was going on. And he would have none of it. He wanted to set it right. And just think about it. Now, of all the places that Jesus was going to attack, where did he, where did he attack? He, the day before, he just gets basically coronated as, as, as the Messiah. And he walks into town. What are all the people expecting? What are their expectations? That he's going to what? Overthrow Rome. Who does he overthrow? Where does he, where's the first place he goes? Into the temple. The house of God. He didn't go to Pilate. He didn't attack Rome. 
where did he go? His first act as he did, he went to the house where his father's name was to be honored and worshiped, and he drove out those who were there with evil motives. Those who obstructed people from worshiping his father, those who perverted worship and made it all about money and prosperity instead of supplication and forgiveness, those who were there for other reasons with greed in their heart and for other motives, he drove them out. And it tells you something about Jesus and his zeal for the holiness of his father and the zeal for the worship that he had for him and he desired for the God people, God's people to have. He demonstrated that righteous anger towards those who desecrated that worship of his father. And I might also add that he also showed great compassion for those who were being taken advantage of. Amen. Those true worshipers who didn't who were being taken advantage of, those who, who were being extorted, those who were being robbed by, you know, the televangelists of the temple. But it started in his father's house. What is the implication of that for us? What's the implication of that for the churches that claim to be, uh, you know, a house of worship, a house of, for the Lord. How ought we to conduct ourselves before the living God? And I also want to say that this is not the temple. And this is where I want to go further and to say that who, where's the temple of God? Whoa. Don't you know that you are the temple of God. As he talked in John 4, he said, don't you know there's coming a day when you're not going to worship in Jerusalem, you're not going to worship on this mountain, that place, but true worshipers will worship God where? In spirit and in truth. And I just read that and I, you know, I was just thinking about that, about the temple and, and our location and what's happening with God. And I go, wait a second. I'm the temple. Do I got money changers going on in here? I've got greed going on. As Jesus walks into the court of my heart, who are the imposters? Lord, have mercy. Verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. There were only a few days left, but Jesus was teaching every day at the temple. And people were hanging on every word. They were hanging on his lips, literally, the, is, is, the, is the interpretation. The, the other's gospel records that more miracles were happening during this time in these last few days. And Jesus had just disrupted the money scheme of the religious leaders and exposed their greed and was setting things right. And he demonstrated his teaching and his authority and his power. I mean, it was just amazing as he walked through. And this was everything that the religious leaders wanted. 
They wanted the praise of the people. They wanted the money. They wanted the power. They wanted the acclamation. And let me tell you, just as a pastor, those things war in my heart. They do. I, I think any person in leadership understands those things. And it, and it is just a constant situation where you have to say, not my kingdom, your kingdom, Lord God. And if I do something well, it's just because you, you, did, you picked up someone out of the dirt and, and made them born again and made them a son and started to use them. You know what I mean? All glory and honor and power to God. And, and that is truly a, a, a flow of my heart as Christ has changed me. But there is always that tendency and the fallenness of humanity to receive praise and glory and to desire what is God's for me. That's Satan's fall. Amen? Maybe, you, I don't know, maybe you're going to go, whatever, you're weird. It's okay. Two of you understand. But they, they were coveting because Jesus was moving in on what they thought was their turf when it was actually his house. They viewed it as their people. They viewed it as their it was all theirs. And I want to hold on to this. And you're messing with our stuff. And we're God's people. And you better get out. And they were looking for a moment to strike at him. But because of the fear of the people. Now it's the re- re- repeating thing here. Because they feared people and they didn't fear God, they didn't strike quite yet. They would. They were trying to you know, build the paperwork, so to speak, so they could get them. But chapter 20, verse 1 says, One day when Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, the whole deal, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? We are the authority. You are not. Who gave you this authority? You get it? Feeling it? You're messing with the power structure there, right? And what they were trying to do is get Jesus, and he had said before, that God has given me this authority, basically. And therefore, they could nail him on blasphemy, and then therefore, they would be justified in the eyes of people to kill him because he was blaspheming God. That's what they were up to. Tell us, who gave you this authority? But Jesus didn't bite, verse 3. And he replied, I will also ask you a question. This was common rabbinical banter. They would, do, they would do these things back and forth. But he replied, I'll ask you a question. Tell me, John, this is John, Bap, John the Baptist. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe John? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John is a prophet. And so they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Let's move on. Religious leaders were trapped. They tried to trap Jesus and Jesus traps them. If they had said that John was from God, they knew that Jesus' next question was going to be, well, John said I was the Messiah. What's your problem? Right? They said if he wasn't from God, then the people were going to pick up rocks and stone him because they believed that John was from God. And so they're stuck, and so they did what any great politician would do, nothing. Skilled politician, that is, in a difficult situation. Verse 7, 
And so they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither I tell you why with authority I'm doing these things. Verse 9, and he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, in Walla Walla, this is a very easy picture because we have farmers with land who don't necessarily uh, work their own land, but they, they rent it out to people to, to do. And they have some kind of agreement about what you'll do with the land and how that works. Well, in those days, they would say, okay, well, the payment will be, I'm going to receive some of what you produce off the land as payment. That, that will be how it works. And I'm going to send people at harvest time, which would be totally understandable, to receive that payment. Well, what happened is as these men were receiving this harvest, they would look at all the harvest and they would get upset about having to make that payment. Anybody else have, to have something that's not yours, you're supposed to make a payment on, but you don't want to because you think it's yours? I'm just talking here. Don't worry about me. So if you think you can't relate with these guys, think again. Verse 10, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, Jesus asks. Now at this point, in Matthew's account of the same story, the people listening are so hanging on his every lip, they answer the question. What, what do they do? They're just following along. And I don't know about you, but there's a sense of injustice. You can see it. And they said in Matthew 21, 41, he will bring those wretches to an end. Amen. Justice. What do they think they're doing? It's wrong. They sensed that injustice. They knew what should be done. The owner had to come and execute these guys and give it to another. And, and, and here in verse, 10, verse 16, Jesus says he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then it dawns as they, the words come out of their mouth, it actually they gain understanding of what Jesus is talking about. They're so wrapped up in the story that they don't realize they're in the story. But Jesus is talking about them. He's talking about Israel. That God is the owner of the vineyard, which is Israel. God is the owner of Israel which is his vineyard, and we can, there's verses in Isaiah that support that. But God entrusted the spiritual care of Israel to the religious leaders of Israel. These were the farmers who rented the land, so to speak. They were to tend and to take care of it and to produce a harvest, to produce fruit. And every time God sent a servant, a prophet, to inspect the harvest and to receive the spiritual fruit, so to speak, they killed them, they hurt them, they beat them. And you can read about this in Hebrews. You can read about this in, 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 through you know, Jeremiah and in, in other places. It's, I think maybe is it church history, actually. It says that he was sawn in two. 
uh, not Jeremiah, but uh, Isaiah, Son and two. And that's referenced probably in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. But you can read about how whenever God sent a messenger, what did they do? They rejected him. They didn't want to hear it. Why? And that was the question. It's heartbreaking. So they could keep the inheritance. It got to the place when they sent, he sent his only son. Surely they're going to listen to him. Now God isn't fooled. He knew it would happen. They sent his son. What happened? They crucified him. They killed him. This guy's on our turf. This is our stuff. We're going to get rid of him. Greed was in their heart. In just two days from when the story takes place, they would actually go execute the Son of God. So that they could keep that inheritance. Listen, they wanted to be owners. They didn't realize that they were stewards. We're stewards. We're not owners. And Jesus asked what should happen. The people said that the owner should come and kill those wicked servants, and that is obvious. And God judged the leaders of Israel along with the entire nation that rejected, who rejected the Son of God. And in 70 AD, Titus came in and laid waste to the city, as we spoke about last week, in detail. And in effect, when the religious leaders, they rejected Christ, they rejected the Messiah, they rejected Him, the stewardship was given to others. The stewardship was given to the disciples, who they also killed like the prophets, with the exception of John. that those disciples would go out and bring the fruit that God was looking for. To produce that harvest. So verse 16 says that when the people heard this, when they understood that Jesus was talking about Israel and the judgment upon them, the story says, they said, God forbid, no way. That's not going to happen. That can't be. Don't you know who we are? Verse 17, And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of this which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118.22 and also Daniel 2 uh, verse 34, both speaking about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the stone in which the rest of the building would be measured against. You had that cornerstone that you could tell where everything else was to come from that. That would be the plumb line. But everything could be measured against. And the cornerstone... Peter says, is Christ. He was rejected. And when the people were saying no way that God's judgment should come upon upon them, Jesus says in effect, what do you expect when the chief cornerstone is rejected? The rest of the building is going to crumble. The nation would reject him in disbelief and be broken and would be 
and he would fall upon them in judgment. But nevertheless, even though Jesus was rejected, he would be the chief cornerstone. That is who he is. And he is to those who receive him, and this is important, he is to those who receive him the chief cornerstone. We are built upon him, and we will not be broken to pieces or crushed to dust, but rather we will be built up into that spiritual building. The church is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, where he's, Peter says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You had a nation that had rejected Christ thoroughly, and yet Christ is who he is, and his gospel has gone forward through others to us in the most distant land, that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. That through his blood, my sin, which was heavy upon me, your sin, which is heavy upon you, of which we will be judged, apart from receiving Christ as Savior. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, when we believe that He is the sacrifice that took away our sins, that His blood took away our sins, communion this morning, amen? Then we are absolved of all crime, of all punishment, that we are made pure before God. And not only are we forgiven, but we are made sons and daughters We are born into the kingdom of God. We have new life. And His Spirit now comes and lives within us. The holies of holies is within us. Christ is within us. We are not God. God, The hope is in us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. And now our lives are to be that temple where God walks in and, and, and our praises and our cries go up to Him and where worship is happening and where the robbers want to come in and set up shop. Amen? And we, when, when we let them do that, it grieves God's heart and the Holy Spirit says, let's get this out. It's no longer fitting. This is my house. But see, who owns you? Are we like those guys who say, this is mine? Or do we understand, I've been bought with a price. I'm yours. Lord, come in and take anything, do anything you want. I'm yours. And that's the church. It's not about the bands. It's not about the lights. It's not about the Christian music and the CD sales. It's about Jesus Christ in the heart of a person. And he's there and he rules and he reigns and he lives out his life through us by grace. Thank you, Lord. Now, I know some of you are just going, get me out of here. A, because he's talking too long, but B, because you've got, you've got a den of robbers holed up in you. Believe me, Jesus is so patient and so kind, but there's no room for God and mammon. <laughs> there's no room. It's either him or, or the world. He wants all of you. And some of you might be going, I can't do this. I can't get rid of it. Then ask Jesus to come in and turn it over. (laughs) 
to rip it out, to drive it out. Amen? And let him come and rule and reign in your hearts again this day. And let your heart be a place of worship and praise and, and just a place of peace and joy and, and just meeting with the Lord. That's why Jesus wept. He desired to be with his people. And he bled and died so that it would be so. And we exist as a church to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. And I would say that inc- includes just being led by the Spirit. It's, it's all to, get, to, to allow Him to fill us and to move us to whatever area of life He calls us to, and whatever area of ministry. Let it overflow. I pray this, you know, to, to give you a little charismania here, I just pray the smoke, sir, the Holy Spirit would fill you so much it would overflow. It'd be sweet presence to other people. Not in weirdness, but in love. Amen? So may you be encouraged this morning and know that uh, if your heart is overwhelmed, you know, God's here for you. He loves you. He'll pray for, we'll pray for you. You've got brothers and sisters around you who've had a den of robbers going on. Maybe you both do. Pray for each other. Love one another. Lay down your lives for one another. Get in there and say, let's, let's get this place cleaned up and not really me getting it cleaned up. Just allow the Lord to do his work. Amen. We can't do anything. And so just... Enjoy his presence this week, church. He loves you. He bought you. He's fighting for you. He's cleansed you. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, give your heart to him today. Say, forgive me, and I repent. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and he will make you a son or a daughter as you now repent and follow him. Amen? So, Lord God, we want to thank you again for your precious word. We thank you for this beautiful place, Lord, that we can gather in your name. It's beautiful because your presence is here, because your people are here, because your blood has cleansed us from all sin, because your spirit is here, God. We are weak, but you are strong, and so be strong in us, Lord God. And we pray all these things in the precious and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.